Welcome to Stacy on the Right with your host, Stacy Washington. Most immigrants come to the United States looking for a better life, but not through crime. But the seven Mexicans you see here, those mugshots, they snuck over the border in Texas about two weeks ago to rob a jewelry store in McAllen. Now, initially, customers thought they heard gunshots when the gang broke display cases to steal watches and diamond rings. Well, that prompted a 911 call of an active shooter, so police rolled out the SWAT team. But take a look at the surveillance video from inside the store. You'll see a security guard top left, a family on the right, stunned as these seven mass thieves rush in. One holding a gun orders the security guard to lay down. Now, moments later, a local police officer working mall security will storm in, gun drawn, and he gets unexpected backup from the guy in the red shirt. Police say that is an armed citizen with a concealed carry permit. Together, they secure the scene until police arrive. Now, the seven are between 23 and 43 years old. All were previously apprehended for entering the U.S. illegally, some in Texas, one Arizona, one has a prior robbery conviction in California. Charged with aggravated robbery, bond set at 200 grand each. All seven want U.S. taxpayers to pay their lawyer because they claim to be broke. The local news reports say the men paid 4500 to get smuggled over the border. This is a felony. They could be deported before or after their sentencing. Welcome to the show, everybody. Stacey Washington, host of Stacey on the Right here on Urban Family Talk and American Family Radio. Thank you for being with us today. Uh, share the show. Share us online. Like, subscribe to... Uh, paraphrase the often repeated mantra of online social media hosts. Thank you for being here. And uh, we are so happy to be even closer, just one day closer to the launch of the Stacey on the Right show on American Family Radio live, the first hour of the show. So glad to be able to speak to that audience as well. In addition to our urban family home audience and all of the audiences that join into the show via live streaming, the TuneIn app, the American Family Radio app, and the Urban Family Talk app, YouTube, Periscope, uh, and, and of course, Facebook. <laughs> Thanks for being with us today. We have a jam-packed show. I, we're going to discuss today who's really dividing America along the lines of race. A few prominent individuals have stepped forward and are outlining the work they're doing in the black community to try to combat a lot of the issues that are facing certain segments of the black populace of Americans today. And I greatly respect individuals who use their wealth and power and influence to help the needy, the disadvantaged, those among us who really need an advocate. I'm going to give credit where credit is due, but we're also going to have to have some truth telling and some, you know, let's get real here. We're going to have to get more than a little real, we're going to have to get a little blunt about the truth about who's really dividing America along racial lines. And so we're going to talk about that. And then we have in hour two, Sal News of the James Madison Institute. He comes on to discuss criminal justice reform with us. And what's interesting about him being scheduled today as a guest is that while he's discussing criminal justice reform with us, we have breaking news. Um, there's an exclusive over at... Uh, one of the websites that I go to often, I believe it's the Free Beacon, where we're seeing that the Department of Justice is actually blasting the First Step Act. Now, the First Step Act was rolled out a few weeks ago by the Trump administration, and there was some fanfare involved. And, and a lot of people who were interested in criminal justice reform, which, according to me, to define it, criminal justice reform is where individuals who have not violently offended are given the opportunity to be rehabilitated instead of simply incarcerated because our jails here in America are criminal training grounds. People who go in for drug abuse offenses who aren't actually criminals, they're people with an addiction problem, they go in and they're basically trained on how to be a criminal. They come out, now they're felons, and they are well-trained criminals. We don't want that. We want to see people who are nonviolent offenders rehabilitated. And so a lot goes into that, and it's a very difficult discussion to have because some people don't know how to talk about the topic at hand. They always have to shift over to their default mode, and that's a part of the problem. But the solution is to relentlessly attack and approach the issue at hand and leave all of the side discussions as side discussions because there is work that America can do, our government specifically, that can separate those two groups of people off violent offenders they need the book thrown at them they will violently reoffend. people lose their lives 
when we are giving hand smacks to violent criminals. But people who are not violent criminals don't deserve hand. They, they don't deserve any smacks at all. It should be rehabilitation. And that's an opportunity to keep more people out of prison and keep more families together and to keep communities from degrading further and further into having larger elements of the population that are felons and convicted of a crime and unable to find work, et cetera, et cetera. It's a, it's a downward slope, a vicious cycle. So coming into the show just now, you heard some audio about this gang of thieves, a group of individuals, most of whom who have been deported before, did a smash and grab at a jewelry store at a mall in Texas. And it was so loud and frightening sounding that they ended up having a bunch of patrons uh, and elsewhere in the mall were under the impression that it was an active shooter. So the police are called 911. You've got SWAT coming in. Turns out it's just a simple robbery. A police officer who was there in concert with the, um, the security guard and a concealed carry certified individual who was armed and ready to spring into action were able to nab the suspects and prevent any of them from escaping. Now, of course, as you heard in the audio, those individuals feel that they are entitled to uh, a defense at our expense. They're in the country illegally, mind you. Again, we need to change some laws. We are being abused mightily by individuals who... I have a story right here. In fact, let's let's get to that right now. We'll, and we'll also be listening to some audio from uh, an ICE official who literally had to take a, a Democrat to task verbally for her ignorance on what breaking the law actually constitutes. So first, let's work our way through all of these. ICE has actually come out with a story, and this is over at CNSNews.com, uh, where they're talking about in Immigrations and Customs Enforcement. They're saying, look, this was Tuesday when parents come here with their kids and they're coming here illegally and they've paid a drug mule, 4,000, 8,000, $9,000 to get them and their child here. And they've been raped repeatedly on the way. They're not, they don't want to take their kids home. There are already other family members of theirs who are illegal immigrants already in America. So all they have to do is get that child to one of the relatives, which our government facilitates. We actually separate the parents from the children. The children are detained in a separate area where they are processed and then moved into the interior of the country because we ask the parents, do you have a relative in the United States who can act as a foster care parent to this child while your case is adjudicated? Once they're told that they can't have asylum, the parents, and that that they need to be deported and that they will be deported and that they have a deportation order, they're asked, would you like to have your child reunited with you to be deported back to your home country? A huge number of these people say no, because the point to them coming here was that they knew it's a 50-50 chance I might get deported. In fact, there's a greater than 50% chance I'm going to be deported back out of here, but my child, I can leave here. Because I have the option of saying, no, I don't want to take my child. Why are we doing that? Why are we telling parents, if you bring your child here and we process your asylum claim, if you go, you don't have to take your kid? How is that even a policy? And how are the Democrats defending that when they're the ones who say that family reunification is the number one issue here? They don't care anything about parents in inner cities and parents in rural areas who are separated from their kids. But yet we're supposed to get really super excited about the separation of people at the border from their kids who brought them here to intentionally separate themselves. I mean, let that sink into you for a second. They're bringing the children here intentionally. They want to leave them in America because they know the kids are going to get citizenship. And then once the kid gets citizenship, they get to bring family members in via chain migration. And that parent may have to wait a few years in Guatemala or someplace else. But at some point, they're going to be citizens too. All they have to do is get a kid in here. That is unconscionable. So the ICE official, and here's the quote, the reason most of these individuals have come here in the first place is, get to, is to get their children into the United States. Many of these individuals have spent five or $10,000, their life savings, to have these children come into the United States. They've paid smugglers. They've paid transnational criminal organizations. They've subjected themselves and their children to a high level of risk on the journey north. Once they've gotten the child here many times to another parent that is in the country illegally or another relative that is here illegally. A lot of times they would not want to take that child back with them and risk having to make the journey again. They've succeeded by getting their child here. Now, ICE official Al Bent said it is easier for some parents to leave their kids 
here and then try to return to the U.S. later on alone without the kid. According to DHS, of the 2,551 children separated from their parents at the border under the Trump administration's zero tolerance policy, 1,820 of them were reunited with their parents or released to another sponsor in the United States by the court-ordered deadline. But 711 children remained in HHS custody as of July 26th, and of those children, 120 had parents who waived their right to reunification, and another 400-plus kids had parents who had already been deported. This is the the same people who support this stuff are the ones who tell us that we need to have Medicare for all and big government policies in charge of every area of our lives. Our government can't even get this right. And yes, I'm talking about the government that is currently headed up by Donald Trump. Inherited problem for sure. But why are they not sitting down and revamping all of these rules and ramming it through Congress the same way the Democrats rammed through Obamacare? Put a bill up that they've already voted for, replace all of the language with immigration language, and ram it through. That is what they did to us on Obamacare. Now, am I advocating for law-breaking? No, apparently that was within the bounds of the law for Congress. And that's what they did. The time for playing nice and doing patty cake with the Democrats on immigration is over. We require, as the American people, safety and security within our borders to the degree that it is reasonable and able to be attained by the Department of Homeland Security, Immigrations and Customs Enforcement, the United States military, any agency that works on taxpayer dollars that is funded by us should be required to adhere to laws that prioritize the lives of American citizens. Point, end of discussion. That is what should be going on. Regardless of the political factions at play in this country, regardless of the Chamber of Commerce and entrenched Republicans who want to see cheap labor flooding the market and depressing wages for Americans, regardless of Democrats who honestly, they don't know what they want. They just want someone to come in with jackboots on and control every area of their lives because they realize they're incompetent and unable to take care of themselves without government intervention. And then there's the rest of us. We just want the government to shrink down and leave us alone. What I'm looking for, because we're heading into the midterms and everybody's like the chicken little sky is falling. Everything's horrible. Nothing is okay. What, what do we do? Everyone is freaking out. Really? Are you telling me that all of a sudden that silent majority of people that narrowly hoisted President Trump into the Oval Office is all of a sudden looking around at the news and saying, now, now we really don't like him anymore. Are you telling me that the same people who were unmotivated about Hillary Clinton and stayed home are now suddenly motivated by the Democrats who are saying they want to roll back the sham of, of uh, tax reform? They want to take your money that you're now in your paycheck that you're now used to getting since February or March. They want to take that money back and increase your taxes. The same people who think it's okay that Kate Stanley was gunned down by a six-time deportee in San Francisco, a sanctuary city, that ICE agents and ICE employees, we're talking about secretaries and janitors and people who just work at ICE, are, they were holed up in their facility under siege by Antifa protesters and Occupy ICE protesters. The same people who are advocating for that behavior, the same people who brought you Maxine Waters who said, when you see these people in public, they can't be in public spaces, confront them treat them badly, kick them out of restaurants, chase them down the street like they did to Pam Bondi down in Florida. These same people who brought you that kind of crazed, whacked out language, that they're the ones who are going to be taking control of Congress in the fall so they can impeach a president who's brought his GDP at 4.1%? No, absolutely not. Prayer warriors need to be right there on the battlefield, which is prayer, raining down and assault assailing the gates of heaven for obviously that we would keep the congress but that a sense of normalcy and wisdom would permeate this country so people could finally wake up and smell what the democrats are cooking i can't elucidate what it is here on you know good christian radio but i think you get the point all right when we get back, we're going to have Sal Nuzzo, who's the vice president of public policy at the James Madison Institute. And we're going to be talking about criminal justice and prison reform. You stay right there.
Hi, I'm Will Addison. And I'm Miki Addison of Airing the Addisons on Urban Family Talk. Family is so important to everything. I mean, think about it. Right after God created Adam, he made family by creating Eve as his wife. We'd like to invite you to the Marriage, Family, and Life Conference this summer. We have a full slate of experts to help encourage and equip the body of Christ to fight for the restoration of the family. Our speakers include Ryan Bomberger of the Radiance Foundation, Dr. Clarence Schuler of Building Lasting Relationships, Abraham Hamilton III, Pastor Bert Harper and his wife Jan, and more. We'll even be there. The Marriage, Family, and Life Conference will be Friday and Saturday, August 17th and 18th at Hope Church in Tupelo, Mississippi. Come help us fight back against the enemy's direct attack on marriage and family. That's the Marriage, Family, and Life Conference put on by Urban Family Communications, a division of the American Family Association. You can learn more and register at urbanfamilytalk.com. Hi, I'm Crawford Loritz with a Legacy Moment. The longer I walk with Christ, the more I'm aware of the devastation of pride. God hates pride. It destroys everything, including the proud person. I think one of the saddest stories in the entire Bible is the story of King Uzziah found in 2 Chronicles chapter 26. Uzziah had been mightily used of God to usher in reform and revival. Almost everything he did, God blessed. But as is the case far too often, he couldn't handle the prominence given to him by God. 2 Chronicles chapter 26 verse 16. But when he became strong, his heart was so proud that he acted corruptly. God gave him a platform, but he had not cultivated a heart of humility. He became proud and arrogant, and then he trespassed his calling by going in the temple and trying to act as a priest. God basically said to him, Uzziah, I didn't call you to be a priest. I called you to be a king. So we read in 2 Chronicles chapter 26, verse 21, King Uzziah was a leper to the day of his death, and he lived in a separate house, being a leper, for he was cut off from the house of the Lord. Here are five characteristics of pride. Number one, pride is always characterized by self-promotion. Secondly, pride is characterized by disregard for boundaries. Thirdly, pride is driven by competition and comparison. Number four, pride typically is critical of others. And then number five, Pride is always demonstrated by a person who is unteachable. Here's what I want you to remember and do today. Identify areas of pride in your life and confess them to the Lord. As an act of your will, continue to surrender all you are to the Lordship of Christ. Legacy Moment is a production of Moody Radio. Welcome back to Stacy on the Right on Urban Family Talk. Welcome back to the show. <laughs> StacyOnTheRight.com, AFR.net. And you can also go to Urban Family Talk where you can register for the conference. The time is getting short if you want to be with us for that. Now, right now, it's my pleasure to welcome Sal Nuzzo, Vice President of Public Policy for the James Madison Institute for this important discussion about criminal justice reform, which I'm excited about. I'm, I'm super pumped about um, learning more about it and also getting this information out to you, the listeners and viewers, about exactly what works and what doesn't work. Sal, thank you so much for joining the show today. Absolutely. A pleasure to be with you, Stacey. I can't wait to talk to you because this is the subject that I've written some op-eds about and I've kind of listened to other people discuss it and I kind of see it as like there's two camps of people and there may be more, but in, in my estimation, there are two camps of people. There's there's the people who are kind of like, okay, um, Criminals are just treated too harshly in this country, and we incarcerate too many people. And so, therefore, we need to not incarcerate people on drug offenses. We need to not incarcerate people on their first violent offense. We need to give people an opportunity to, you know, be rehabilitated. And so it's kind of the soft smack on the wrist, which enables violent offenders to go out and basically kill more people. And then you have the others who are really in a much more nuanced approach who are saying, look, some people need the book thrown at them, but other people who haven't violently offended are definitely candidates for rehabilitation. What could that look like here in this country? I tend to be more of the latter than the former. Talk to me about this. Yeah, absolutely. And and JMI has worked on this topic for a number of years, both in the juvenile and in the adult arenas. And what we have come to find out is you're fairly accurate in that 
you've got folks who predominantly come from a center-left uh, philosophy who say, look, we are over-incarcerating, there are disparate impacts, um, the social costs of uh, incarceration are, are enormous, and, and we need to do something differently. And they preach about criminal justice reform from a social justice angle. On the center-right, you have a growing cohort of largely fiscal conservatives who approach the, the policy from uh, the standpoint of we can do better with the tax dollars that government is using, and we can steward those dollars better by looking at uh, kind of micro-targeting uh, reform efforts. And the other part of it is, is that um, you know, there, there is a public safety aspect to this that if we are treating nonviolent, mostly drug uh, offenses in the same way that we're treating very violent offenses um, and we're incarcerating folks together in those capacities, we're creating a system that perpetuates itself and that grows. And so on the center right, you have this fiscal conservative um, uh, kind of uh, public safety angle. The interesting thing is the policy goals, the policy reform ideas are largely the same regardless of of how you're going about uh, kind of packaging, uh, selling the, the ideas. So let's talk about some of the ideas, because I thought it was pretty interesting that we have had you scheduled for a little bit, but just out today is this letter to President Trump from the Department of Justice blasting the First Step Act, First Step Act which um, is interesting because I... I thought the First Step Act was widely supported, but now you have an entire arm of the government, very important arm at that, the Department of Justice, saying they don't like this. Yeah, it's unfortunate. Uh, groups like uh, the James Madison Institute, uh, Right on Crime, conservative coalitions of, uh, of folks from around the country have really been encouraging the U.S. Congress to take up this idea of prison reform. It's been going on for the better part of uh, the last two decades, and it really started has started to gain some momentum, and the First Step Act was a part of that. Uh, it, it's unfortunate, um, uh, quite honestly and quite candidly, um, the, the, the Attorney General and the Department of Justice have been a bit reluctant to embrace any of the concepts that have uh, been coming out of uh, the conservative groups over the last two years. Um, but what we can say is that they have shown to be successful. Uh, states like Texas, Oklahoma, Georgia, very conservative states have shown that you can radically reform your criminal justice systems, you can save money, you can improve public safety, and some of the concepts behind those things are, 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 behind those reforms are things that, you know, would make sense to uh, conservative members of the voting public. And so um, there are things like sentencing reform and, and restoring discretion on the part of judges to be able to do the thing that we entrust them, judge, and discern whether or not a person is a habitual drug offender in need of aggressive treatment or is a person that really is is a violent person who needs to be locked away. There are things like pre-arrest diversion programs where we can reach in before a person becomes uh, kind of uh, consistently in, in, in the criminal justice system and get to them with treatment so that they're not tapped with a felony conviction and kind of perpetuating the cycle of, of, of crime and poverty. And there's a number of uh, reforms in the juvenile side, especially here in Florida. We've, uh, we've done some great things over the last four years with our outgoing Secretary of Juvenile Justice. And these are all done in conservative states. So it's absolutely something where we hope the states are showing how we can be a model for, uh, for the federal government. Okay, so you you covered a lot of ground there, and I, you know, oh, yeah. Sal, I, I agree with a ton of that. Um, um, I really feel like there's there's more opportunity for us. Not, and I don't discount people who have already been incarcerated but deserve 
uh, you know, an opportunity to come out and make a life again. I do not believe that a felony conviction is the end of a person's life. People can be rehabilitated, serve their time and come out and be contributing members of society. And we have to believe in forgiveness and redemption because, you know, this is Christian radio and, and I'm, I'm a believer. I don't just talk on Christian radio. I believe in it that God forgives, he redeems, he heals, and we can go forward and do amazing things with our lives. But I, I see that the bulk of the effort that we have to undertake in this country is being a two-pronged effort. Really, we have to catch people before they've been arrested. We have to catch, or if they've been arrested, but they're not being prosecuted for a felony, that's when we catch them and try to divert, educate, retrain you know, instill a a sense of respect for being law abiding because that's before they've had the chance to be incarcerated and trained on how to really be an excellent criminal. Absolutely. And one of the programs that we've been uh, piloting and expanding here in Florida is this idea of pre-arrest diversion. And so um, in Florida, it's called a civil citation program. And so the way that the program works is that for very, very low-level offenses, Uh, The uh, law enforcement officer has the discretion, instead of writing a notice to appear or bringing someone in on a a, a petty misdemeanor or even in a felony in some cases, to write a citation that then diverts that individual into either a social services uh, center or a counseling uh, program. They still have requirements. They still have a, a fine to pay. They still have community service to undertake. But instead of giving them either a felony conviction or starting them down the road toward one, we're getting to them at the beginning and at the outset. And so what we found is that in Tallahassee, where I'm at, which uh, started the program, the reoffending rates or the recidivism rates for individuals that have gone through that were a third of what they were for similar crimes where the individual was not given uh, the citation. So it's proving itself uh, to be valuable. The other part of it is is it doesn't cost taxpayers a dime. It's run by uh, the social services safety net um, in uh, kind of uh, the nonprofit community. It is um, it diverts away from the courts, so it, it involves, you know, you're, no, you're not undertaking court costs. Uh, individuals are not having to uh, undertake getting an attorney, taking them to court, doing arraignments and all of this stuff. And, and the program itself is beginning to show a lot of fruit, and it's something that we hope other states are going to begin to look at. So what is the mechanism by which states that are looking to take part in this type of activity can kind of join in the bandwagon that you're leading down there in Florida? Sure. There's a, an organization called the American Legislative Exchange Conference. Uh, it's mm-hmm. called ALEC. And uh, they provide uh, mo- what's called model legislation for any state to consider going down the path, not just in criminal justice policy, but in a host of other policy areas. Uh, we brought uh, the Florida uh, legislation to uh, ALEC, and they adopted it as model policy. And so any state that's interested in this can log on to uh, the ALEC website. It's alec.org. They can search on uh, pre-arrest diversion and find it's kind of the boilerplate template for what legislation might look like, and then they can tailor it to whatever their uh, particular state looks like. I would also encourage folks um, to you know, follow organizations like JMI on social media. We're constantly tweeting uh, and posting about different policy efforts that we have. We have folks that uh, look to us from around the country and really – uh, we have taken on criminal justice reform as a 21st century, uh, you know, conservative cause, and and this is really where I think we're going to gain ground um, in in winning hearts and minds and in policy reform for for generations to come. Fantastic, because I I am aware of Alec, and and they get a bad rap, but the the fact is they do the heavy lifting for states, so that you don't have to try to figure out how to do the thing that you're doing. You don't have to kind of waste your time with recreating the wheel. Um, So what other states besides Florida have kind of gone through that process with ALEC and, uh, you know, joined you in reforming criminal justice in their states? Well, really, uh, the state that that launched the entire movement was the state of Texas. And that happened around 12 years ago through an organization called Right on Crime. Right on Crime was started by an 
ultra-conservative uh, Texas legislator who decided he had had enough of uh, the state spending billions of dollars on new prisons and not getting anything uh, in the way of benefit in terms of reducing crime rates. And so his name was uh, Jerry Madden. He started this effort, and he began, as, began it as a legislator and began to research it and began reforming uh, the Texas system. And over the course of that time, I want to say they've closed eight or ten prisons. They've lowered their crime rate to historic lows, and they've saved uh, upwards of $10 billion uh, to, uh, to taxpayers. Since then, you've had states like Oklahoma, Georgia, Louisiana just did an incredibly robust uh, package uh, just this past year. And you even have some liberal, uh, more left-leaning states like Connecticut, uh, Maine, and some others that have undertaken uh, similar, uh, similar policy reforms. Regardless of how they go about it or the, or the philosophies that they're using to get the right policy in place, and you're absolutely right, Alec does get a bad rap. Alec is a collection of legislators who come together to say, what are we doing that's working and what are we doing that we change and how do we make it uh, easier for folks who are in, legislate, in legislatures around the country to be able to, uh, to, to make good policy. And so those are the kinds of things that we're, we're about. And uh, I, you know, again, thank you so much for allowing us to, to have a, a platform to, to market this. So I, I hope to speak to you about this again in, in more detail and to kind of continue to outline this. You know, every day it's a different group of listeners. We have our, our regulars, but then we have people who tune in and they may have missed this conversation. I encourage people to go to StacyOnTheRight.com or uh, UrbanFamilyTalk.com slash Stacy and listen to the podcast or share this with friends who are, this is a primary concern for many, many people in America where they are they they have uh, you know, they want to see something good happening with people who are, are are incarcerated or may have been arrested. They want to reduce recidivism. And you've just described how this has been implemented successfully in a number of states. And so they can then bring this to a legislator that they may have a contact with, have some rapport with, and start the ball rolling for this type of activity in their own state. So I want to close the interview out with some of the um, you, you shared money saved and things like that. But if you were just to nutshell it for someone who isn't maybe as policy aware or has never heard of Alec or anything like that, they just know they wish there were fewer people incarcerated and that crime could continue to be decreased. What would you say is the chief benefit of doing this type of criminal justice reform work that JMI is spearheading and Alec is kind of doing the legwork on? What is it that people get out of this as constituents, taxpayers, people who live in the community, et cetera? I would say, ultimately, we are saving lives. And, and I don't mean that as hyperbole. We are getting people um, out of a cycle of crime and poverty by reaching into where they are, by, by meeting them at their place of most need. And the policies that we create at the state level are going to person by person create a better society, and they're going to create a more uh, a, a kind of a society that it's not always about saving tax dollars, but as we're saving tax dollars, they can then be directed and diverted into programs that are going to truly benefit uh, us as a society here in Florida and in other states that are pursuing them. Oh, I'm loving the sound of it. And when you talk about saving lives, it becomes more real to us when we hear uh, some of the stories about people who've applied for clemency and been granted from the president, from President Trump. And we hope for more of that. One of the stories that I think has really uh, been roiling in the background for me and, and a group of people that I've been communicating with is the story of a, a young man. He was on active duty. And after he left the service, he was in the Air Force, I believe. He was at a nightclub. A fight broke out. He retrieved his weapon, shot, and it, really it was a stand-your-ground type of thing because he was punched first. And he was incarcerated for 25 years. The stand-your-ground defense did not work for him. And I hope to see clemency for that individual. And I hope to see more people who don't even have to make it that far that aren't incarcerated because we can do more to keep them out of prison. Sal Nuzo, Vice President of Public Policy for the James Madison Institute, thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much. Anytime. All right. We'll talk to you again soon. We will be back with more. We're going to talk more about ICE arresting 127,000 criminal aliens in 2017. And we'll take your calls. Be right back.
One of the first steps to becoming a Christian is recognizing our sinful nature. What makes this so difficult is that we have selective vision when it comes to our own issues. It's easy for me to see your faults, but when it comes to seeing my own, then my eyesight automatically gets bad. One surefire way to measure new birth in Christ is by opened eyes and a clear vision. Sometimes we can pass between having sight and having no sight because we have fallen asleep to the needs around us, or our perspective on those things that are eternal is distorted. Whatever the case, there is nothing more dangerous than having blurred vision and still thinking that it's clear. Don't measure your vision by your own standards. It will be warped and distorted every time, but rather measure it by God's standards. God desires that our eyesight remains clear. So how is your eyesight today? With the heart for the Urban Family, I'm today's Urban Woman, Tony Johnson. Connect with us at UrbanFamilyTalk.com. Hi, this is Steve Tiber with 8 Days of Hope. Hurricane Harvey was the second worst disaster ever seen on American soil. 8 Days of Hope responded to that need in Houston, Texas, back in March, where 4,700 volunteers came from all over the world in all 50 states to love and serve people in need. When we left, we realized that there was still much more to do. So many people still were hurting, hundreds of thousands of families looking for somebody, anybody to help them. Here's your chance. 8 Days of Hope 16 will be back in Southeast Houston October 13th through October 20th. It's free. We provide the food and lodging. We're looking for skilled professionals, people who are semi-skilled, and people with no skills or less skilled and want to give back. For more information, you go to our website, 8daysofhope.com. We're expecting about 2,500 volunteers from all over America to go back to Houston to love and serve those in need. Hope to see you in Houston, 8daysofhope.com. For more information, 8daysofhope.com. I'm Chad Pergram with the Speaker's Lobby. Fights over a government shutdown rarely have anything to do with confirming a justice on the Supreme Court, but that may not be the case this year. Government funding expires October 1st. That coincides with the start of the Supreme Court's new term on the fabled first Monday in October. Senate Majority Whip John Corning characterized October 1st as a target to confirm President Trump's pick for the high court, Brett Kavanaugh, but Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell isn't as firm. Now, President Trump is saying he might push for a government shutdown if Congress doesn't fund his wall. Here are two scenarios. Imagine the Senate confirming Kavanaugh in late September, and then a shutdown hits on October 1st. That dashes Republican momentum just before the midterms, snatching defeat from the jaws of victory. The story would shift immediately, and the GOP receives zero credit for muscling through Kavanaugh. Now consider if the Senate hasn't confirmed Kavanaugh by October 1st and there is a government shutdown. In that case, the GOP stumbles all over its own narrative about the importance of confirming Kavanaugh. With the Speaker's Lobby, Chad Pergram, Fox News. Welcome back to Stacy on the Right. We know how, I know how powerful the youth voice are. And I think now is, a, is the time where, where we're going to start hearing more and more voices from the youth because they understand how powerful they are now. And, and they can move and shake. They, they can make things happen to youth. I think a lot of people are tired of hearing, you know, the, the adults talk. Yeah. But when you hear the kids speak, when you hear the youth speak, it's a little bit more touching and people feel obligated to get something done. When you were growing up, did, did you see gun violence, that kind of stuff? Was, was your neighborhood that tough or was it was that something that has gotten worse if you, if you watched Baltimore? Yeah, I mean, I, really, I, I, I don't like to talk about it, but it's, it's easy. But my neighborhood was called the pharmacy for a reason, right? Like, it was, it was the pharmacy. And they made a TV show about my neighborhood, The Wire. So uh, a lot of those things was for TV, but there was a lot of things in there that was, that was real. I mean, that, just... That much dope dealing. Yeah, it was just, you know, the, the, the drugs, the prostitution, the fighting, the killing, the police brutality, and the school system and the prison system. Like, I've, I've, I've been a part of all of that growing up. So uh, I know what that feeling is like. And it, it almost, you almost become immune to that when you was growing up. But now that I'm able to step back and see exactly what I was going through dealing with, like, I feel like I have to do something to help that. Welcome back to the program. Stacey Washington, host of Stacey on the Right. I'm also the co-chair for uh, the National Advisory Council Project 21 of National Center for Public Policy. Nationalcenter.org is where you can find out more about us and what we do over there. Um, and you can also read the blueprint. You can follow the links over to that and see uh, what we're proposing as policy suggestions and legislative actions for the Trump administration and those on Capitol Hill and how to improve the lives of black Americans through limited government and targeted intervention. 
So we're back today, uh, back from the break. Fantastic interview with Sal Nuzzo. Uh, Honored to have him on the program. I have a little bit of breaking news for you. Uh, so first of all, I know we were promoting having Janet Pirro of Fox News on the program. And she had a scheduling conflict. And so she will be with us on Monday. And then tomorrow, we are going to be so excited to speak with Eric Trump. He's coming on to talk about the president and some of the travel that's on the schedule. And so it'll be our first time speaking to uh, a member of the Trump family. And we're really excited about that opportunity. Uh, so right now, you were just listening to Carmelo Anthony talking about gun violence. And so I'm, I'm kind of in the middle here because on the one hand, I want to just I just want to rip him for saying that gun violence is up since Trayvon Martin like that's a benchmark. Kids have been getting gunned down in inner cities for decades. Trayvon Martin is not the benchmark. Trayvon Martin was actually in the process of beating up Zimmerman when he was shot. This is not a test case for us on police brutality or the incorrectness of certain laws on stand your ground or, or misapplication of those laws. You have to use a case that is actually the, the facts line up with what you're trying to assert. Trayvon Martin's case doesn't meet that, that, that bar. Carmelo Anthony is someone that I've been, I just, he grew up in inner city Baltimore. He had this terrible, uh, you know, neighborhood situation. And now as an adult, he's done some things that I totally disagree with. He sent 4,500 adults and children to the March for Our Lives. Uh, I feel like that was a waste of his time and money. But then on the other hand, he's done some other amazing things, uh, school supplies and things for teachers in disadvantaged areas. He does work in South Africa because he did some kind of safari. And while he was there, he met a lot of people in the country of South Africa and felt like, there was something there. He also works with uh, the people, the poverty stricken people in Puerto Rico because he has some heritage from that part of the world. So he, he's he's definitely out there moving and shaking and making some things happen. But in my opinion, he really detracts from that work when he tries to take up these tropes of the left and bring them to the fore and, and kind of push those instead of focusing. Really, it, it takes a lot of money and a lot of effort. I applaud the efforts that he's already taken, but what, what else can he do with all of that money and all of that influence to make sure that kids know that their best ticket out of where they are, it's actually not the NBA like Carmelo Anthony has done. That's less than 1% of the country that gets to take advantage of being a professional sports person. The best ticket out of poverty and neighborhoods like the ones that he grew up in is an education and a clean record, not being arrested, not being involved in criminal activity, et cetera, et cetera. When do we hear that from him? Now, admit it. This is a, a lengthy interview he did on ESPN. He's talking about the gun violence. He's invoking Trayvon Martin. And then he goes forward with a little bit more information, which I, I honestly, I found it fascinating to listen to because he clearly has a heart for trying to improve these situations. Uh, but as a conservative, I can't agree with him making the Trayvon Martin case, the benchmark for everything that he's doing or for him pinning his feelings on that particular incident. So he starts to talk a little bit more about his work in the inner cities. And I thought it was really instructive, especially after listening to what legislation and criminal justice reform from the government side can look like from agencies like JMI, James Madison Institute can look like. Here's what it looks like when someone who has millions of dollars and a national platform through their work in uh, you know, sports can do. And so it, it's just a little bit of what he's been doing at number five. Well, I want to walk through some of the stuff that you're doing just to give people a sense. Cause I think a lot of people, they're watching the news, they, they feel completely helpless. Talk about uh, this uh, uh, tools for teachers. Why are you uh, trying to give teachers better tools and technology? Like why are, the, why are teachers in your heart? I, I mean, let's just face it, it's, it's, the teachers get, get treated like, you know, we, we all know what the teachers get treated like. Uh, you know, the, the, the education system, the school system turns their back on the teachers. Uh, when you go around and actually talk to these teachers and then listen to their stories about their relationship with the kids as, as far as, uh, you know, having to give kids, uh, you, you know, utensils and book bags and books and food. food, like, you know, at the end of the day, they become, you know, kind of one of their parents or their chaperone, somebody that they have to look 
after more so than just a teacher to a kid. So when you hear those stories, you, you want to give back. And I mean, that was the easy part, you know, giving pencils and pens and book bags and books and, you know, arts and craft supplies. And, you know, those things go a long way. So they do. And I think, you know, he, when he talks about the plight of teachers in inner city schools and what they have to deal with, with kids not having supplies and, you know, poverty, impoverished communities and how different it is from what many of us are used to, which is you actually get this school supply list and it's ridiculous. And then you go drop a couple hundred dollars at three or four different locations trying to get everything on the list, including paper towels and, uh, you know, tissue and wipes to clean down the desks and everything. You almost wonder, what else can I bring to this place? My taxes are high and now I'm bringing in all the cleaning supplies. You drop all of that off. You stack everything up in the teacher's classroom. And then you're, when you arrive, the teacher has the room decked out like it looks like, a, you know, a, a glorified New York loft. It's got everything you can think of in it. And also their computer, uh, you know, rolling carts and laptop carts and, you know, iPad carts and everything. And if you're coming from an environment like that or if that's the only school, public school environment or private school environment that you're exposed to, it can be kind of difficult to really connect up the difficulties that inner city teachers face in just getting enough supplies in the room. Kids who are showing up, they don't even have a backpack. Kids who are showing up to school hungry every day. Kids who show up and they honestly don't have any school supplies and they aren't getting any. And so you have to make sure that every kid has at least, you know, pencils and things that they need to do the minimum amount of work. And that's on top of teaching them and educating them and them and Look, in suburban schools, kids come into kindergarten, they've had 50,000 words spoken to them by the time they're five years old. They have all of their sight words that they can read. A lot of them have even been instructed in comma usage and they're using, you know, they're using (laughs) adverbs. They know what an adverb is. These kids come in, they can count to 100. Some of them can count to 250. Some of them, most of them can add and subtract. The reason I know that is because we lived in a suburban district and when our kids were in public school, one of the first things we did when we were thinking about moving into the community is we took a trip to the park in the area and we would go there. Like the, the more we drilled down and, and kind of narrowed it down to this neighborhood that we wanted to move into and, and buy a place in, we would visit that park once a week and we would, we were gauging, are these people friendly? Are they, what are they like? What are, what are these people going to be like if we're neighbors with these people? While you're there at the park and the kids are playing, you can talk to the other parents. So, you know, how, do, how I noticed you have, is she three? Is she four? Is she five? How are you getting her ready for uh, kindergarten? And parents are very open about it if you ask. Oh, you know, we're doing these flashcards. We're doing those. Flash- She's doing, you know, this preschool program, et cetera, et cetera. And that's how I familiarize myself with the expectations in the district. I also called the school district and I spoke to the secretary at the elementary school that, that was in our target area. And I asked her, how can my child be ready for kindergarten, the standard at this elementary school, not what it says for the state of Missouri? Because I'd already reviewed that and we were already there. She said, oh, you know, most people are worried about sight words and all of that. But she said, I, in my opinion, and I've been a, a school secretary for 30 years, the most important things your child has to be able to do is sit still uh, for 40 minutes at a time. So be able to sit still and listen and engage in an activity for 45, 40, 45 minutes at a time. Your child should be able to follow a multi-part instruction and your child should be able to feed themselves and go to the bathroom. And I was like, what? She said, you'd be surprised how many people they do everything for their kids. The kids can't even go to the bathroom on their own. You need to make sure that your child is able to be in this environment. I said, well, my daughter's already in preschool. She said, well, then she's probably got all of that down. And then I asked again about the academic requirements. And she said, kids come on with a range of abilities and the teachers here are prepared to deal with all of that. Now, That's true, but it's kind of not true because none of the three children that we put through that elementary school, none of our three children were ever in a classroom where anybody came in at kindergarten who couldn't read. And so were they reading like college level? Of course not. They're five-year-olds, but they could read a hard book, a hardback book. They could also, many of them were doing the Dr. Zeus books. They could read them. So why am I going through all of that? Because... In a suburban school district where all the kids come in and they can read and they can add and subtract and recognize all their numbers, the teacher starts off at a different level than in an inner city school where some of the kids come in and they can read, 
Some of them come in, they haven't cracked a book open ever. And most of the kids come in without having been exposed to 50,000 words. And that's not 50,000 different words. It's just 50,000 words. There's a huge difference. It's conversations like that, that that's the kind of thing that has to be exposed to parents. Because in my opinion, when parents are informed that, look, most of the kids are going to be able to do this when they get there, regardless of whether or not they're driving a Lexus, you know, or, or a Kia, a lot of parents, a huge segment of parents who hear what the standard is are going to work to meet that standard. There'll be parents who, who won't care, parents whose lives are too chaotic for them to really even pay attention. But until we get to a place where we want to reach out to those parents, every one of them, and let them know, just as a heads up, when your kid gets here, they need to be able to do X. Hey, just as a heads up, the state says your kid should be able to do this at the end of kindergarten. But most of the kids in our school can do this at the beginning of kindergarten. So just so you know, to hit your, to hit the ground running, you might want to, you know, work with your kid instead of just having the kids stay up until midnight watching TV and playing all summer, maybe you want to spend 20 minutes a day reading to them. Definitely. And definitely want to expose them to some flashcards with numbers on them, teach them the concept of addition and subtraction through normal everyday activities and kind of start preparing them for the school day, you know, and that means getting that bedtime down well before school starts, getting that getting up in the morning routine well before school starts. There's, there's a lot that goes to it. And so for kids who are impoverished and do not have access to that information, their parents don't have access to that information for whatever reason, they're coming in, they're already behind. Now that sounds crazy, doesn't it? A kid who's five years old showing up to school on the first day as a kindergarten is already behind. But that is the truth in so many situations. And a kid who is behind in kindergarten and doesn't catch up in that first year is much more likely statistically to be behind in fourth grade. And the fourth grade reading statistics, kids who can do reading and math in fourth grade, that is the year that prisons take their first survey on whether or not, or how many, not whether or not, but how many what percentage of those kids they need to have prison beds ready for by the time those same kids are in the eighth grade. Because kids who can't do reading and math in the fourth grade are much more likely to be significantly behind in the eighth grade to the point that they're skipping school or dropping out of school. They're involved with criminal elements in their school district or in their neighborhood, and they've been arrested for the first time. And the corporate prison system is already preparing beds for them, bed space for those people, because no school means they're running around during the day, getting involved in no good, no good leads to arrests, arrests lead to incarceration. So when you think of it like that on the continuum, because there's a lot of work that gets done by uh, sororities and, and other social organizations in the black community, and they call it the uh, school to prison pipeline. And it's, the way it's described, it's like, well, there's these people out there and they already want your kid in jail. No, but they're going to they're going to set aside a bed for your kid if they can't read and do math in fourth grade. It's not that they want your kid there. They're preparing a space because they know your kid's going to be there because they figure parents who can't teach their kids how to read and do math in fourth grade that can't interface with that teacher and make sure they're on grade level in fourth grade are certainly not going to be around to make sure their kids are in school in middle school. That's where we are right now. So, yes, we want criminal justice reform, but we want it back there. That's where we reform it first. We'll be back with our two right after this.